0: Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with our frequent guest and good friend from Time Magazine, Phil Elliott. Phil is a Time Magazine Washington correspondent, and he's been with Time since 2015. Before that, he spent almost a decade at the Associated Press where he covered politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House. He's covered three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump. Phil brings us up to date on developments with President Trump, his administration, and what the Democrats are up to in the spring of 2019. Phil, we touch base every once in a while, and boy, there's so much going on, uh, (laughs) Right now, I I, I want to touch base on several topics, and one is sort of the uh, presidential temperament at this point. Uh, Let's start with that. We had a weekend of uh, perhaps some isolation this past weekend, over 50 tweets generated by the president on a, a real array of topics. Uh, some people outside the White House going, eh, this isn't normal. Some people inside going, well, what do you expect? Uh, so, what what's your take on all of this?
1: You know, it was interesting to watch in real time um, the the president kind of let us in on his thinking. Um, as much as we are constantly surprised by this president and his behavior. He really is running an incredibly transparent um, operation. He lets us know what's on his mind. And that is going to be really, um, it, once we get uh, some distance from this, historians are going to be able to look at this and just marvel at just how much information we have. We're not going to have to wait for the memoirs, which are usually highly sanitized. All right. We're not going to have to wait for the presidential archives to open up well after the library is built. We, we know what the president is consuming. We know what his news diet is. We know what memos are reaching his desk. We know so much because he's just telling us in real time what content he is consuming. The, the danger here, though, is he, in, in doing so, he, he is also telling his critics and investigators and instigators what, what is on his mind and letting us have a real-time sense of what he's doing. The joke here in Washington is um, they call it executive time. Right. The president has unstructured time to himself just to think about the world. And all presidents have this, and all presidents really should have this. This is not something that we should... Um, criticize or mock. It's time for the leader of the free world to gather his thoughts, to read his memos, to read a book, to call longtime friends and advisors who aren't in the White House to get their take on things. The problem here is the president is availing himself not of people like Doris Kearns Goodwin. He's availing himself of Fox and Friends in the Morning. And that is how he's spending his time going through his DVR and seeing what his favorite hosts on Fox News are saying about him and of him. Um, And the worry among White House staff is that all of their work and advice and counsel and well-thought-out legal memos and strategy and policy advice and budgets, all of that is being... um, is supplemented by what um, activist types are able to plant on the teleprompter at the Fox News headquarters um, with television hosts. that they're making, A lot of people are making end runs around the policy process in the West Wing by having someone on Fox and Friends say it on television, and that is setting government policy more than anyone in like, uh, the, the, the regulatory office at the Office of Management and Budget,
0: it sounded like in in a couple of tweets uh, about Judge Janine Piro and and yeah. uh, Tucker Carlson that almost the president was acting as a Fox News executive. Tell him to you know stand with these people and and don't give in and don't be so politically correct. It was almost like he was. Uh, trying to make executive decisions at Fox News.
1: It, it was, and it's interesting considering the histories here. Um, the, the, I mean, the president, the, the Jane Merritt, the New Yorker, who is a phenomenal writer and an alumna of Time magazine, had a phenomenal piece in the New Yorker about how Fox News and the White House have kind of had this mind melt, that there really is, if not a um, a if not a firm line, but at least a dotted line uh, between the two organizations and that Fox News was acting as a media strategist for the president. The president was acting as a booster there. You walk into the president's rallies um, and you see there's the press pin where they keep all of us locked behind bike rack. And then you see Fox News with its own broadcast platform uh, (laughs) wandering more freely I mean, it, it, there have been times when a uh, Fox News host has appeared at a Trump electoral rally um, as a hype man. It, it's, it's this weird um, symbiotic relationship that is, it, it's, it's going to be telling how, if this continues through the rest of this term and into the second, if there is a second, for future presidents, it opens a lot of questions about the role of the press and journalism that it, how comfortable are we with people who are supposed to be telling us the news, interpreting the news that they help shape. And I, I think that is something of a macro question that we need to take a step back and think about. On the specific questions of Judge Janine and Tucker Carlson, the, the president really does, uh, um, re- he respects these individuals, he likes these people um, the, there was a running joke that Judge Jeanine, uh who tried to run against Hillary Clinton uh, for the Senate seat in New York, um, was the de facto um, uh, Attorney General and legal counsel to the <laughs> President personally, because he just he just he he is he's smitten with her, not in a romantic sense, right. but he thinks she is very smart and clever and really has her thumb on the pulse of what. Not just the legal community should be thinking about, but also helps interpret the legal troubles facing the president, and there are many helps interpret those for trump's base uh tucker carlson he he sees as one of these uh populist guys that just understands how the working man is getting screwed um, and it just really has this fascination with how tucker's audience um interprets how how Tucker interprets the president's actions for his audience and how Tucker's already audience then um, responds to how what the president is saying and doing there there is this populism there that the president knows his reelection hinges on and he sees Tucker Carlson and his audience as a as one of those um, early barometers of how he's doing
0: well, let me ask you as a, a Midwesterner and somebody outside the beltway, uh, last week we saw a, a rebuke of the, the president on uh, from the Senate on the S- Saudi and, and U.S. support for the Saudi uh, war in Yemen. Uh, we saw the 12 Republicans cross over and vote uh, to uh, – ruled the emergency declaration to be null and void. Uh, we saw uh, a unanimous vote in the House on uh, disclosure of uh, the Mueller report. These perhaps rebukes of the president, is there any linkage between them and what we saw this weekend in his uh, tweetstorm?
1: It's tough to draw a direct comparison. I, I'm reluctant to, because there are, there's also the ongoing Mueller investigation, right. which is problematic. And there there is a school of thought that the president was tweeting to distract us from that, trying to under, undercut, discredit anything Bob Mueller might be coming up with. The, the fact that the president wasn't on the golf course suggests there might have been a national security issue that kept him at the White House um, waiting around. There, there, there are just so many moving parts of the American presidency that it's tough to attribute um, any behavior to one specific thing. So I would just caution okay. there. But if we're, if we're going to go with the president's very bad week in Congress, which was a very bad week in Congress, it, it's, it's worth remembering that there, it, it, this necessarily wasn't about the president Per se, this was a lot about Congress looking around and saying, "Seeing, hey, there is this co-equal branch of government that is trying to do a bunch of stuff that we didn't sign off on. We're not cool with this. the 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 the, the war in Yemen. Like we never we, ne- we never got we never explicitly wanted to get involved with that. We, we're not cool with the president sidestepping." Congress and being able to spend billions of dollars unilaterally. The, the thinking you, t- you talk to, especially of, the, of those 12 Republicans who re, uh, voted against the president's use of emergency powers, of those 12, six are on Senate appropriations, and the appropriators control all federal spending, that, you know, all spending bills start in the House, but they have to go through the Senate, Right, and that is, that is the last place where congress gets to exert power on what the president has in his bank account to do. And with the emergency declaration, the president tried to well he will say that congress's role in spending money, which is prescribed in the constitution, is optional. And six six of those republican appropriators said, "No, uh, you're not taking that power. We have not spent our entire political career getting a spot on this committee." to control the purse strings. And that is more of an institutional question than a personality
0: question. But the president sees everything through the lens of personality (laughs) as opposed to constitutional power. And the president seemed before those votes to try to frame this as an up or down on him as opposed to pay no attention to that constitutional issue behind the curtain kind of approach.
1: Yeah. I mean, you talk to folks like Mike Lee, um, a, a Tea Party conservative from Utah, um, a very smart individual who is a student of the Constitution. And he, he, he has served at various levels of government as a prosecutor. He was counsel to John Huntsman when Huntsman was governor of Utah. And he's just like, you know, I like the idea of a border wall. But you're doing it in all the wrong ways. And if we do it this way, if Elizabeth Warren becomes President someday and she decides there's a national emergency on guns, can the can President Elizabeth Warren use the same power that we were just okay with President Trump using to spend a bunch of money to round up your guns? and or if president um, Kamala Harris decides that you know sea levels are rising and we've got to combat climate change? can she use emergency powers to nationalize polluting industries? That there's a reason why most of these emergency declarations are usually done um, abroad and for foreign policy and very seldom um, for ongoing domestic issues. Um, it's it's really a, a question of, and Tom, you, you're, you're, you, you, you are a lawyer. Uh, yeah, so you know this as, right. as and clerked, for, clerked at the Supreme Court. You, you know that like every, it's not about the case in front of you. It's about what happens 50 years from now right. and what precedent you're setting and how and every senator right now is keenly aware that they're not acting just in this tweet cycle. They're acting for history. They're acting for what the John Meachams of the next generation write about them. And that is something that's keenly on the minds of lawmakers.
0: So, if that's if that's the case, and and I suspect uh, you're spot on with your analysis of that, let, let's move this over into the political framework. Uh, we see the legislative branch staking out some of their turf uh, on on the War Powers Act, on on appropriations, on their need for disclosure of the Mueller report etc we see the president going into this sort of downward sporad- or uh, uh, erratic is the word i'm looking for tweet cycle uh, over over the weekend some observers have said this is part of the president's campaign strategy not not to be rebuked by, by Congress, but if he's going to be rebuked, then to play the victim, become the victim. That's how he won in 2016. That's how some people think he can win in 2020. If he's the victim of everything and people feel that they're the victim of everything, they can identify with him, and this is a plus for him politically. What's your inside-the-beltway observation of that?
1: I, I think you're completely right on that, and it's the second part, that it's not about the president feeling he's the victim. It's the, that the president's supporters feel that they're the victim, that the system is rigged against them, that they are not getting a fair shake, that the elites here in Washington, the elites in New York, San Francisco, that they think they know better and are trying to prescribe... Um, new, pr- they're trying to prescribe fixes for what, what is generally accepted as a problematic system, that there, there are structural challenges to the American political system. A lot of voters uh, I've spoken to, uh, especially um, in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, tell me that they, vo- they didn't really love the president, but they loved that he was going to, he had pledged and they thought he was going to deliver um, to to shake things up to upend the status quo to end the the system that rewards the, the insiders we we now see that that's not necessarily what the president is doing but in trying to win re-election the president is willing to continue down this road using this playbook to nurse the grudges of the powerful against the outsiders to the elite versus the rank and file, and it, it's interesting to watch the president, who himself is a self-described billionaire um, from New York, who for years had given money to political causes and candidates, describe himself as the outsider here, and that dissonance, um, the president is going to have to square um, as we head into this reelect cycle.
0: Well, let's move over then to the Democrats for for a while, and yeah, and, and I want to start before we get into the presidential mix. I, I want to start with Jerry Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee, Adam Schiff in the House Intelligence Committee, and 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 uh, Cummings with the Oversight Committee. The request for documents from over eighty different people and agencies. Yesterday was the deadline. Some of them made it through. The president and the White House seem to be saying, no, we're not going to play that game. We've got Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, saying "Uh, we're not going to go impeachment unless there's really something bad because it's just not worth our time Uh, interpreted. They'd lose in the Senate and look bad. But All of this going on on the investigative side of Congress. Um, Where are we going to go with this? And is this going to go up through election? Is there going to be some kind of moratorium? Uh, Help us understand that.
1: Okay. Um, Going to go back to your Pelosi comment very quickly, that – she left herself an out there. She left herself she did. Uh, a pressure valve that she's not going to do impeachment unless there's overwhelming evidence and unless there's bipartisan support. She. A lot of people interpreted her comments as closing the door. I did not interpret it that way. My colleagues at time did not interpret it that way. Uh, the current issue of Time Magazine, plugging my publication sure. on the newsstand, is has an image of the president as a peach uh, with the headline of, Do They Dare?, the Democrats will likely impeach it's a wonderful piece by uh, that, that I contributed reporting for um, Molly ball has the byline on it it's just a great outline of that they' are laying the groundwork investigatively to get there so that that's just it, it, speaker Pelosi can say that impeachment is off the table but it's it's also important
0: to remember her unless so I just want to and and that bipartisan part of that, and unless I think is from an outsider's point of view, critically important, they don't want a Bill Clinton situation where they go through an impeachment in the House, and with uh, a sure defeat in the Senate.
1: Correct. And uh, Speaker Pelosi has a, has a majority, but it's a fragile majority. A lot of her first-term members are already. In the in the in the crosshairs of the GOP, and they are building the case um, for especially for these. It's largely a female class uh, to make these one-term women uh, make these new uh, new members of Congress who are female one-term women, and that's kind of the talking point inside um, circles here in Washington. And she knows that overstepping could cost her dearly. Um, we saw. In 1998, Bill Clinton was facing these impeachment proceedings. It was incredibly politically unpopular, and bucking trends of history, uh, typically Bill Clinton's Democratic Party won seats in 1998 elections. Typically, midterm elections deliver big blows to the um, party in the White House. Bill Clinton bucked that trend uh, in '98 and actually picked up seats in the House. Uh, that that is the worry. and if that plays out, it's it's in the in the midst of impeachment, uh, Nancy Pelosi will have made her last uh, effort as speaker the the but you're right, everyone's looking at the politics of the Senate and at present, at present without without overwhelming evidence, there there just isn't support um, for an impeachment pr- pr- proceeding to go on. and that Speaker Pelosi is not going to ask her members to walk the plank uh, for a message vote. She is just too smart a politician to say, to have her members stand on principle if it's not going to deliver. She is not going to script an attack ad against one of her own.
0: We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next, educating and inspiring each other Bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus, and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Well, let's move over to Democratic presidential politics. Oh, my. You you have covered uh, politics for a long time, Phil, and you've covered campaign after campaign after campaign. Even to a veteran like you, this has to be a unique field.
1: Yeah, so this is my fifth presidential cycle, and it, it, it makes me feel really old, but i really excited because I finally feel like the imposter syndrome is fading, that I actually feel like I don't have to sit at the kid's
0: table. Um, <laughs> now no, people, seriously, it's, people it's, it's will come saying. to you for sage wisdom.
1: <laughs> I, and I will, I will still have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but no, it's, 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 you're looking at this field and unlike the last field of Republicans, um the there isn't. There is no. There is no consensus about how this is going to turn out. Um, also, to be clear, last time the consensus was Jeb Bush was going to be the nominee. <laughs> right. So, and we were just talking about huge amounts of money, huge amounts of enthusiasm. Um, I, I before, right before we got, hopped on the line, I was talking to uh, a source at a think tank who said that no fewer than five candidates have asked advice on a specific proposal uh, since the new year. That the democratic infrastructure in Washington, D.C., at the think tank circuit, in the universities, and in the labor organizations, organized labor, the unions, have started dusting off the binders of policy ideas that they've had because everything is possible at this moment um, in terms of policy, in terms of imagination that there is just this energy coursing through um, professional Washington, not not the political hires, but the, the institutions that are here, administration over administration, thinking about how they do structural change, process change, um, granular change. Um, that They're they just really um, excited about the potential. And you're going to see a lot of these big marquee institutions say, our policy is here for anyone who wants to read it. We have spent years researching this, and for a lot of these Democratic candidates, they're not caring about the politics. that They're telling, they telling these scholars, you get the policy right, we'll worry about the politics. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these pie-in-the-sky ideas. And at the, at the vanguard of this, you're seeing Elizabeth Warren out there with her, let's break up monopolies, let's do... Right. Just giant like you, you can't in her in her formulation of policy, you cannot be the platform and the vendor when it comes to Amazon that either you can be the platform people sell things on or you can sell things on a platform you can't do both you cannot have the monopoly there um, you, you, on Facebook, you cannot be the content platform and the provider, and that's a whole separate area for legal. Um, for for First Amendment law, it's but a that's, mess. That's a whole different. <laughs> that's a whole different discussion. That's a mess. That, <laughs> that that is that. Thank you, Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, that her childcare stuff and uh, and her early um, her child. It, it's all just building this incredible um, interest and imag- capturing the imagination of of the Democratic Party, but. staying with Senator Warren and not to elevate her among others, but she's who I'm uh, writing about at the moment that she has done this. She's blended this policy wonkdom with her own personal story. And that is something we've not seen done effectively before um, sustained in the democratic party that, Oh, you want to talk about childcare? Well, let me tell you about the time I dropped out of college to take care of my kids. You want to talk about monopolies rigging the system? Well, let me tell you about the time I stood up the CF, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That there is this this ping pong between policy and personal that she has done to create this arc in her campaign so far. And we were still very young; we're still in the first quarter of her campaign. But it's it's very interesting to see that policy doesn't have to be something you give. At the brookings Institute on uh, Brooking Institution on a Tuesday morning, and then you talk about your pa and ma on Wednesday in Iowa, right. as though they were completely dis- disconnected. And I think the smart candidate this time is going to be able to do that. I'm not saying Elizabeth Warren is built for the long haul. We just don't know, but she is intentionally trying to blend the policy and the personal and the politics all at one. And really, a lot of these candidates, a lot of these rival campaigns, are paying attention. And there's a there, there is a way that every one of these candidates can get there, that they have really smart political strategists and they have really smart policy people. I'm thinking of Kamala Harris, for instance. Her sister Maya Harris, who's a law school dean, who is the chief domestic policy advisor to Hillary Clinton's campaign, is is among the best policy strategists in the campaign. Now, if we could get her to sit down with the political strategists and figure out a uh, communication strategy, then this just becomes like a powder keg of imagination. And every other candidate has this potential. But I, I think it's interesting to take a look at um, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren as a case study on like, what is possible without
0: pandering. So we've got this policy-politics mix and certainly uh, more talk uh, of democratic socialism, whatever that means, Uh, and so a characterization by the Republicans of the Democrats moving far left. Uh, But I also see a a generational difference in, in the field. And I was a, a bit surprised, perhaps uh, naively so, that when Bernie Sanders announced, I thought most people would go, "Come on, Bernie, you you're you're the old man who yells, "Get off my lawn." you know, just just <laughs> <laughs> go away and and don't mess us up again." Uh, but then he raised record sums of of money and and, all of a sudden was back in in the conversation. We've got Joe Biden sitting out there on the side, everybody looking, saying he might be the Democratic messiah, but um, maybe not. Maybe he's too old. Maybe he's got too much baggage. Is there a generational divide? And and how do you see that playing out?
1: So setting aside the ideology divide, which is also very real in the Democratic Party Right, right now. right. Just dealing with the generational divide, I think folks like Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have an incredible debt to pay to Nancy Pelosi, that this was a woman who everyone had said, you know, you had your time. Come on, Nancy. Go home to San Francisco, retire. And she has just proved in the first in her second uh, stint as speaker to be an effective and disciplined leader for the Democratic Party. And all of the she's had her time comments have come to an end. She is she has proven a tremendous fundraiser and a tremendous coach, great mentor. And she is trying to keep the Democratic Party on a very narrow path to lay the groundwork for if they need to an impeachment and trying to um, remind Democrats just how good she is at that job, that being Speaker of the House. Is, is a different skill set but not entirely than that, uh, than that as president uh, or at least the nominee. And it, it's, it, there's a reason why so few people survive the, the, uh, the path to the nomination or the speaker. That you've you got to be the best at, your, at what you're doing and stay disciplined, stay focused. And Nancy Pelosi has shut down The generational divide um in the democratic party um in a a way that i think benefits people like biden and sanders that said you 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 talk about the the just sheer dollars that bernie sanders was able to raise oh man just this week though we saw that energy shift to a new candidate and a new generation and beto o'rourke the former congressman from el paso who raised more than $6 million in the first 24 hours of his campaign. That is going to be something that we need to keep an eye on.
0: Talk about Joe Biden. I know you've been looking at at Joe Biden. He's got Midwest roots through Pennsylvania, Ohio. He is uh, really rust belt through and through. He also has the gravitas to, to have a presence. He also is feisty enough to take on anyone, including Trump. Where do you see a Joe Biden fitting into all of this?
1: So, if Joe Biden runs, and I, I've I've covered him dating back to two, when he was a, a candidate in two thousand seven, right? Um, and I, I anyone who's covered Joe Biden has an affinity for the man as an individual that. He is he he is second to none in terms of the inner politic inner interpersonal politics. Uh, you, you can see him go into diners in New Hampshire and Dairy Queens there. I believe is in Steubenville where he had a woman sit on his lap. Um, that he just has this gift of um, instantly being able to commu- connect with individuals, whether they be um, city council members or farmers or uh, Wall Street executives. He just has this ability. Um, it, it really is a talent and a gift for him. The question for him is, does that matter anymore? That are we now at the, the arena show stage of a campaign where you've got to be able to blow the doors off a 20,000-person venue? Donald Trump never had any sort of ability to connect with individuals one-on-one, right. but was able to put on a good show. And are we at a point in our politics where the, the, we, we're, we're rock stars and we need to be out there singing shallow a la Gaga, or are we <laughs> doing a, a small venue, 40-person coffee shop like the donkey? I mean, it's, it's just the question of what is the scale of our politics, given the money, given the interest, given the stakes of this election, and will voters... Decide that they they love the authenticity of a Joe Biden, or do they want the
0: audaciousness of a Beto? That's that is going to be fascinating to to, to watch, and then and we you, don't know, and, and then we then don't you, know, and that's, that's why, right. That's why it's so it's so important for us to be out
1: there talking uh, with voters and watching these campaigns unfold.
0: And, and then you have uh, people like uh, Elizabeth Warren who's more of a policy wonk than, than I would say any of the people we've talked about uh, and, and and where she fits in to, to all of this. And then the Cory Bookers and the Kamala Harris and, and the whole array of candidates – Any one of them is fascinating. But when you put them all together, it's 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 both uh, fascinating, but also talking to some of my Democratic friends, it's frightening that the Democrats will self-destruct through this process.
1: That is a really real um, that that is a truly real worry. Um, So the Democratic National Committee met here a few weeks ago in Washington, Um, the delegations from all the states, state party chairs. And the overwhelming sense was, yes, we have a great field, but so did the Republicans in theory in 2016. They had Rick Perry, the longest serving governor of Texas, uh, who had managed a tremendous economic growth in that state. You had Jeb Bush of the political dynasty. You have Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, who could speak to the Tea Party base. You had just this, uh, you had Marco Rubio, the new face of a new Republican party, trying to... uh, speak to the importance of immigra- immigrants and immigration. You had John Kasich, who could win the Midwest. Um, you, you just had all of... You had Mike Huckabee, who could speak to the resurgent South. There was just so much potential there in the Republican field, but they they cannibalized each other. And even though Donald Trump only got like 25% of the primary electorate vote, he was still able to patch together enough to win the nomination. And that is the worry um, among Democrats right now that the way the way the party has decided to allocate its delegates, there is a very real possibility that we wind up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, summer of next year, without a nominee, without a delegate, with the rec- without a nominee, without um, the requisite number of delegates, because the party... This is part of the um, legacy of Bernie Sanders um, candidacy in 2016 is that the party activists, many of them newcomers, have been convinced that the system was rigged, rigged. against Bernie, right. that Bernie would have been the nominee without superdelegates. This is not true. Um, but they were convinced that everyone conspired to deny Bernie Sanders the nomination. And it was party insiders, mem- such as members of Congress, former party chairs, donors, um, DNC members conspired to deny Bernie. Under tremendous pressure, the DNC agreed to say, look, party insiders will not be allowed to pick the, will not even be allowed to vote on the nominee until a candidate wins the majority, not the plurality, the majority of pledged delegates, which are decided at, at the state level. Complicating this matter even further is those delegates will be allocated proportionally to any candidate who gets 15% or more in the state. You could potentially have seven, eight, nine candidates based if they decide to run as regional candidates who roll into the convention with a pot of delegates but not enough to get the nomination and they're only pledged depending on how the state set up the rules for the first ballot, second ballot, third ballot. And then you have these party insiders in the back room who are sitting on their hands. People who've devoted their careers and lives to paying attention to democratic politics, building the party who are just sitting there and not able to tilt the, tip the balance. It's, it's, they, they have, the democratic party has unilaterally disarmed its legacy um, players and what is gonna end up happening is you're gonna have a bunch of very idealistic um, activist types rolling into Milwaukee, but no nominee to unify them, no platform to, um, no consensus platform, and you're, what is gonna end up happening is, in in my view, there is a very, they're gonna run a very real risk of uh, just squandering an opportunity, dividing the party even further, I mean, if you think the, the DNC meetings post-Bernie <laughs> Sanders were chaotic, I mean, we, we, could end up, we could end up like 1968 all over again with just like a real fight for the soul of the Democratic Party where you're going to have people loyal to Bernie, people loyal to Kamala Harris, people loyal to Elizabeth Warren just vowing um, to, to defeat the rival and all the while president trump's uh president trump becomes uh more and more of an elder statesman in this scenario there is a very
0: real risk of this happening one last question and i know you're on a tight time deadline so you can answer this as briefly as as you wish you know the the president talked about violence last week uh talking about the bikers for trump and the police and the military that they, they don't – they're not violent people, but if it comes to push and, and if they're pushed too far, violence could ensue. We then have the uh, tragedy in New Zealand uh, on Friday and the weekend where the president dismissed the fact of white nationalism uh, spreading around the world. Where is that going to go? Those two factors—you uh, know—is it something that we're going to see time and time again uh, be brought up during this campaign season? Um, is it just a fluke of a news cycle?
1: So let, let me take those questions separately. Okay. Because white nationalism is it, it, its its own bucket of issues uh, apart from violence. Got it. So just speaking. About the violence that we we have seen time and again, there are very real threats um, in this country. Um, we we saw a gunman go into a newspaper in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, to shoot journalists. We we have seen um, violence against uh, Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia. We have the detention of journalists in Myanmar. Uh, the Reuters journalists, we, we, we have this, this, it has become acceptable um, in this paradigm that critics can be silenced. And whether that is institutionally like Reuters, whether it's um, my, my colleagues, m- most of them are female broadcast journalists who require security when they are not in their bureaus, um, because they receive many, many death threats. Um, it, it, whether it is the Twitter um, almost hourly anti-Semitism that some of my colleagues um, in- endure on that social platform, it has is, it is become acceptable to bring your hatred to the fore. I do worry what this is going to look like for the reelect. I, want, I worry... What these rallies are going to feel like as as we go there, like it is not uncommon to have um, to be heckled, to have your um, the bike rack shake and um, to have the broadcast platform uh, go wobbly. it is It has become acceptable, if not popular, if not encouraged, to have these threats um, actualized. it It is really quite disturbing. Um, to watch this, um, I, I would commend uh, to our listeners Jonathan Weissman's book uh, titled "Semitism" is a great, um, quick, engaging read about what the anti-Semitism um, facing journalists right now um, feels like. Uh, he's he's an editor at the New York Times and a good friend, so plugging Jonathan there. Um, secondly, the question of white nationalism: that it is very much on the rise, and there, there is, the, uh, there, there are very real political con- consequences of this moment. That there is a lot of interesting, if not disturbing, scholarship um, that is taking place right now in real time, which I I don't know that we've we've ever had the benefit of such smart people. Um, doing this. I mean, there, there's a great book, um, How Democracies Die, um, that's on my bookshelf. I'm looking at my, my dystopia shelf right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there, there's, there, there's a lot of really smart people thinking about what, what the consequences of this moment are. Um, Cass Sustein, who um, worked in the Obama administration, he's a brilliant Harvard Law professor. Um, has a, a quest, asked the question about um, what the rise of white nationalism and other political trends, titled, Can It Happen Here? Um, it, Cass, of course, is married to uh, former UN ambassador Sam Power, who won the Pulitzer for her, for her book, A Problem from Hell, about uh, genocide and lack of human rights. Right. Um, Madeleine Albright uh, last year released a book um, titled Fascism, A Warning, like there are people sounding the alarm about um, that. You know, this is more than an, inter- an entertainment on Fox News. This is more than a Saturday rally in Biloxi. the 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 consequences of the corrosion of our political discourse, the or the erosion of civility, the corruption of our norms. The, there are very real consequences happening here, and what what the result Yes, it it has electoral consequences, but it also is undermining the very real foundation of what it means to be in a liberal democracy, lowercase l, not a political party, but just right. a liberal Western democracy, um, and what that means for our ability going forward. Uh, that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this, about structures and norms, um, just, just thinking like confidence in our institutions are at or near record lows. No one believes Congress is working for them. No one believes the, 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 the president in the institution of the presidency. We've seen a complete tanking of uh, confidence in the FBI because the president continues to call it a witch hunt. Our courts used to be a bastion of independence. The military used to be unassailable all of our faith in these institutions has been chipping away and it's not just this president, we saw this under Obama, we saw this under Bush, we saw this under Clinton, but we, we, we've we never seen a president before take such a sustained approach to, re, to telling Americans that the institutions that pr- presume to work on their behalf, that are empowered by our democracy, are not working on their behalf, that they're actually working counter to their interests and um, that we should not believe um, our own uh, democratic institutions um, are, are, are functioning. It is a very
0: disturbing trend. Well, on that bright note, <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you get on with Sorry, you. I'll climb out of my pulpit here. No, no, no. We'll let you get on with your business. Thank you so much, Phil, for bringing this up to date. We appreciate talking to you every couple of months to see what's going on and and get our reality checked. So thank you very much. Of course, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Time Magazine's Washington correspondent, Phil Elliott, about President Trump and his administration, along with Congress and the early Democratic presidential field. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your podcast outlets.